The Checkup is made possible by CVS Health, creating programs that help people stay on their medication as prescribed. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. CVS Health, where health is everything. From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Carrie Goldberg, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hi, Carrie. Hey, Rachel. So today we're talking about power. Okay, Carrie, Take the Power Back is not exactly the typical theme song for a couple of middle-aged moms who report on health. No, but today maybe it should be because the theme for this episode is power to the patient. Cool. Yep. We talk about three ways that patients can have more power with our money, with our medical data, and with our medical stories. And we all really are patients at one time or another. Or we're advocating for patients, our parents, our kids, or other loved ones and family members. Right. But it can seem like it's the healthcare system that has all the power. The doctors and nurses or the hospitals. Or the health insurers, what they'll cover, what they won't cover. And as patients, we so often defer to these people we perceive as powerful. Right. Like we get so intimidated. And that brings us to the eternally painful topic of money in the American healthcare system which I'd like to introduce with a very sad little personal story. Carrie, this is your story of the $400 ear cleaning by chance? Uh, It is the $446 ear cleaning. To be exact. Yes, I wrote about it under the headline, Medical Bills That Make You Say, What? Actually, it would be like WTF. Right, right. (laughs) But there's a sequel that you haven't heard yet, Rachel. Oh, do tell. So here's how it starts. I went in for my annual checkup. My doctor noticed that my ears had some sort of waxy buildup, and she asked if I wanted to get them rinsed out. And I said, yeah, sure. What the heck? A few weeks later, I get this bill for $446. And it was all out of my own pocket because I I hadn't known this yet. Uh, Our health insurance plan had a high deductible. Okay, so $446 just for the ear cleaning. Did you get anything else done there? (laughs) It was like five minutes of like whoosh, whoosh, pick, pick, and then you're done. Definitely WTF. (laughs) Yes. So here's the quick little sequel. So about a year later, my ears were getting kind of waxy again. And I figured the bill had been so high because a doctor did it. So I asked specifically for a nurse to do it instead. Let me guess. It was maybe 200 for the five-minute cleaning? It was (laughs) $331.44. So, so much for How did they get to that number? (laughs) But so much for my attempts at being a better healthcare shopper. So I turned for advice to an expert, Dr. Don Goldman. He's the chief medical and scientific officer at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is really very widely respected. Sure. And he's also a clinical professor of pediatrics at Harvard Med School. Well, I'm sorry you have to have your ears clean. That's probably uh, an expense you can avoid in the future. But th- this is uh, pervasive. And we can just talk for a second about going to a dermatologist. 
uh, where the dermatologist or even a a nurse practitioner can literally spend a couple of minutes with you, do some very, very minor procedure, and you get a very large bill. So, Like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Hundreds, yes. The pricing of medical care still bears very little relationship to the actual value or the time it takes to provide that care. And I recently went on to try and price ultrasound uh, that was recommended by a physician. And it was very hard to actually find what it would cost me paying out of pocket at that point uh, to get that procedure. Uh, and you're a total expert. And in I'm this an field. expert. I mean, right. it turns out you have to go to your insurer and they will have comparative data. It's a little bit hard to find, but I did find a wide range of prices for this specific procedure and it did influence uh, where I went. But if that, then, of course, I had to be sure that where I was going was a high quality place. Mm-hmm. So th- this is going to be improving, but right now it's still very hard for a person to figure it out or even know that they can find this information. Right. So what's the general advice for, let's say, your average healthcare consumer contemplating a procedure that you have a little time to shop around for? Do you start with your insurer? You do. And and even better, start with your physician or nurse practitioner and begin to bring up issues of cost with them. Actually, I'd like to get into that because it was so awkward for me to even think about bringing up cost with my provider that I've put off my checkup for more than a year. <laughs> it sounds like you need wax in your ears so you'll remember to go to your primary care provider. <laughs> That's what, <laughs> but gets me there. Get an excuse. Uh, but I, I mean, I can tell you a little story about what happened with me with my shoulder. I think I threw out my arm trying to play uh, wiffle ball with my son. And I went to see a orthopedic person Uh, And before I could even make the appointment, I was told I had to get an MRI. Uh, And I challenged that. I said, why don't I see Dr. – I'll just make up the name Jones, and and then we can determine together whether I get an MRI. So I went in the office. The guy came in, and he put me through various motions of my shoulder and said, oh, classic frozen shoulder. I said, well, how sure are you? And he said, oh, 95 percent sure, but we're going to get an MRI. And this this kicked in a certain level of uh, frustration <laughs> with me, and I know this person. So uh, I said, why do I need the MRI? Please explain. I'm just a patient. And he said, With well, an MD, but we'll ignore yeah, that. Yeah, but we'll now. ignore that yeah. because <laughs> physicians have the same reluctance you were describing. We don't want to offend our provider. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he said, well, it's only a 5% chance. There could be a little tear. So I said, well, if there is, what will you do? He said, oh, we'll give you PT and see what happens. I said, and if there is no tear, we'll give you PT and see what happens. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, um, what if I don't want this procedure. He said, we'll do the PT, but I, I think you should get it. And so I, I then asked the question you had asked, what will this cost? Good for you. And, and of course, he had no idea because he's thinking you're covered by insurance. It's going to be a $15 copay or whatever it is. And he didn't know the real price of this if I were on a high deductible plan. Uh-huh. Plus, taking time off from work, paying the exorbitant parking. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is real cost to me that's out of pocket in a different sense than just cash. Uh, So why do I need it? What are the alternatives? Uh, What will it cost? And if I just say, no, I'm not going to get it, what will you do? Okay, so that's on cost transparency and shopping around for cost. Now let's get to the even harder issue. What's the state of play in terms of being able to figure out 
where you can get better quality medical care. We can go to uh, national databases. Uh, if you go to Medicare, it's called Hospital Compare. If you go to the Commonwealth Fund, it's Why Not the Best. And you can see for organizations mm-hmm. how they do on whatever measures are there. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of measures, and they may not be measures that relate to what you're going to have. So let's say you're going to have a hernia repair. Okay. I'm not saying whether or not I need a hernia <laughs> repair. It's too much information. Not asking. Uh, but <laughs> you won't find hospital compare or why not the best data on hernia repair. You'll find larger issues like readmission rates uh, and uh, such things on those websites. Mm-hmm. And that may not feel relevant to you. It certainly won't tell you about the individual physician or surgeon who's going to be caring for you. I want to know, am I going to have this done by somebody who does a high volume of these? What are his or her outcomes? Do they have wound infections? Is there a lot of pain? Will I need to have it repaired again because they do do, do it right? Do they do non-invasive surgery because there's that choice? You get stuff that is just not helpful. You get uh, information from health grades, which has little circles that are either black or half black or all white, and you're supposed to figure out what that means. And it's all based in general on consumer feedback from their experience. I, I got almost nothing that was helpful. Wow. I think I'd say that most of us, the way we shop for doctors is we talk to our friends and relatives and we ask around and we say, do you know of a good X, Y, Z? What would you add to that or what what do we do? I always want to know about the volume of procedures that are being performed. If you're going to have surgery or colonoscopy or whatever it is, a person who does high volumes of something, according to the evidence, has better outcomes than somebody who does just a few. And you can find out those volumes? You you can ask. Ask. Uh, I mean, I I always ask. And they may well know uh, because their department or their hospital or their society may be tracking that as part of their quality improvement stuff. And they may be able to give you the data. If Although, they, are they under obligation to give you the data? Uh, I would walk away from somebody who was not willing to have that discussion. Right, right. And I think your sense of comfort and trust is really important. Just talking to somebody, does this person care about me? Are they forthcoming? Are they transparent? You, you can get a sense uh, if you're uncomfortable or it's something major or very expensive. I would always get a second opinion. And, and we can tell who's a real friend and who's not, who cares about our life and who doesn't. You can tell a waiter who cares about your table from one who just wants to tip and doesn't care about you. And the same thing's true in medicine. I am afraid, madame, there is a problem with your order. What's that? Are you out of the prime rib? Uh, no, madame. It seems here, he opens the medical chart, that your doctor has indicated you have the diabetes, the high cholesterol, and the high blood pressure. So... So perhaps you would prefer the lean chicken and the low-fat salad with dressing on the side. So, Carrie, it seems like no matter how much we want to be smarter consumers of healthcare, there's like this veil of secrecy. And, you know, it's completely different from any other large purchase we make. I mean, imagine going to buy a car and the sales guy says, oh, right, well, we'll tell you the price later. Just decide which car you want. It's exactly like that. There's no transparency. Okay, so this seems like a good spot to stop and mention our sponsor, Audible.com. Okay, Rachel. Now, I know you love books and you're concerned about the environment, right? Guilty on both counts, Carrie. (laughs) Well, Audible has over 180,000 titles, bestsellers, fiction, nonfiction in every category imaginable, and all are available to you without harming us. 
single tree. Impressive. <laughs> and you, Checkup listeners, can get a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash checkup and get started today. That's audible.com slash checkup. Okay, so now let's shift to something that we already have a lot of information about our own personal medical experiences. Which, by definition, we know about because, like, I know what I've experienced, right? Right, you know your story. But it's more than just knowing your story. It's actually how you tell your medical story, how you frame it. That turns out to be very important for your health. Hmm. I spoke to a primary care doctor and a psychologist who have taken the research on patients telling their stories and how they do it, and they've turned that concept and that research into a nonprofit. Here's Annie Brewster, the Boston internist, on how she got it all started. I think Health Story Collaborative was my response to what I feel is lacking in today's healthcare system. I worked in primary care for a number of years, and what I learned there is that it's really difficult to know your patients and have the time to listen to your patients and learn about their lives just because of the structure of the system now. It's machine-like, it's 15-minute appointments, and I think in that system, physicians are frustrated, but primarily the patients are often left feeling ignored and overlooked, and the stories of people's lives are getting pushed out. As a patient, I have been on that side of feeling vulnerable, being in the doctor's office, feeling like I'm being pushed out the door, not being listened to. And I think that's frustrating. And the experiences that I've had when I feel like my doctor or my provider really is listening and really cares about my story in the context of my life, that has added a lot to my care. And it's been a much more positive experience. So Rachel, how has she used this experience to help others? Well, so what Annie does is she gets people in the midst of very serious conditions. They have cancer, they have eating disorders, intense stuff. And she lets them tell the full story with her, a doctor in the room. And she believes this to be therapeutic in a very deep way. There's a yearning that patients have to really be listened to. And in doing this work and collecting these stories, what I've learned is that it's very therapeutic for patients to share their stories and also therapeutic for listeners. Okay, so we're going to listen to two clips of patients that you interviewed. Can you just give us a little information about what we'll be hearing? Uh, First, we're going to hear from Liz. Liz was 19 years old when I first interviewed her, and she has bulimia. When I was in the midst of my eating disorder, when it was really bad, I was definitely at a place where I hated myself. I gave up my life to lose weight. I used to have all of these hobbies, and I loved music and reading and all of these things, and I just wouldn't do any of them because I thought they were a waste of time because they weren't making me lose weight. I was really angry that I threw away who I was and was afraid of who I was because I thought it was wrong, and I thought the only way that I could be right was to be thin. I wouldn't share my feelings with people because I was afraid to show people that I wasn't okay. So I couldn't have really meaningful relationships. I felt very alone. Waking up every day was a chore to me. It's another day where I just have to go work out all day and it was just a horrible way to live. It's something that no one deserves to have and I think a lot of people don't understand that. It's an addiction. A lot of people just 
see you destroying yourself and say, you know, just eat or just stop. And if I could stop that easily, I would. So, Carrie, now we're going to hear another story. This is from an artist. Her name is Evelyn. And as a young child, she had a terrible case of scoliosis. Here, she talks about being paraded in front of a room full of doctors. And later, as an adult, she used her art, her painting, to try to process this experience. So he left me outside. All I had on was a Johnny and a tiny little pair of pink underpants that somebody had given me with ruffles on the back. I'll never forget the ruffles on the back. And so when he came out, he wheeled me into what is the ether dome at Mass General. All I remember was I, I saw a sea of faces in rows going up, 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 really high in front of me with lots of people with white coats on. And they looked lifeless and gray because I couldn't see anybody's color of their skin, or if they were a man or a woman, they all looked very similar to me, but their eyes looked like they were scary and sad and trying to figure me out. And the doctor that was on the stage was the director of the orthopedic department, and I had never met him before. And so he stood me in front of him under a light, and on the wall, there were x-rays of my body from the floor to the ceiling. And in this painting, I've got lots of images of deformity, pictures of Quasimodo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. The name of the painting is Shame. And the reason I call it Shame is because I felt ashamed of myself and my body and my person, my soul. I felt like I was an object. I felt betrayed by the doctor who had brought me there. I didn't know why this was happening to me. God, that poor little girl. It's like a classic nightmare. Right, in her underwear and everything. Yeah. yeah. So I can see how it could help to paint it out or to tell your story about these experiences. But is there any research that shows that it does actually help? Well, Carrie, indeed, there is research on this. Jonathan Adler, an assistant professor at Olin College of Engineering, does research on storytelling and how that impacts health. What the scientific research shows is that it's not just any story that will do, that there are different ways of telling your story that better and worse support your mental health. For example, one of the themes that shows up again and again in good stories, stories that are really good for people's mental health, is this theme we call agency, which is really how do you portray yourself, the main character of your story? Are you in the driver's seat of your life or are you really being batted around by the whims of external forces? Right. So you can really take any experience and and narrate it with a sort of greater sense of agency or lesser sense of agency. So what's helpful compared to not so helpful? You want me to actually do a first person Yeah, thing? yeah. Even though I would never have hoped for this thing, I feel like I have some control over how I can respond to it. That okay. would be a high agency way of right. making That's sense. That's high agency yeah. and low agency. And low agency. This thing happened to me and now I'm at its whims. I have to do what the doctors say. I have to do what the cancer says. I have to do whatever. Right. Wow. And there was a high correlation between, as you said, agency and improved mental health for years to come. Exactly. Agency was one of those themes that seemed to have a strong relationship with positive trajectories of mental health over the course of several years. Okay. So how are you using this research? Where we're putting the research into practice is by listening to the stories that we are collecting from people and 
to the extent that they're interested, helping them work on their stories in a way that is authentic to their experience and also gives them some scientific support for positive storytelling. This episode of The Checkup is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Health, it's a team sport. CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them. So CVS created programs to help people take their medications regularly and stay on track. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Okay, Rachel, so everything that Jonathan Adler and Annie Brewster were talking about is about this very subjective story. But of course, there's also objective records of your medical story, right? And that's embodied in your healthcare data. And under HIPAA, the federal law on medical records, we all have the right to see these medical records. We do have that right, but how many of us actually see them? Like, have you ever pulled your records? No, and the few times I've gotten a glimpse, you can't even read it anyway, right? Right, so. right, right. I keep waiting until I can see it all online, but the patient portal that my doctor and hospital use won't let me yet. And I would note that they're part of what's reputed to be a billion-dollar electronic medical record system. So for today's theme... You're saying that we can empower ourselves as patients by getting hold of our medical records. Right, and even more than that. So, what I'd like you to do is to say with me the following as loud as you can so that the funders hear us. Make our data count for us. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Isaac Kahani. He is the first director of Harvard Medical School's new Department of Biomedical Informatics. Okay, make our data count for us. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? What it means is that there are lots of data that describe your health record that can make a tremendous difference in how your life will unfold, whether you get the right surgery, the right drug. So your vision is that there would be a tool that would allow the drawing in of all patient data. And then when you have a given patient, you could figure out the optimal thing for a person with all those characteristics? That's right. I mean, think how often we hear uh, front page news about some 10,000 patient study that had the following result. And think about the millions of dollars it took and how many years it took to get that result. What if the speed of results would be the speed of asking good questions across millions of patients and say, what was the effect of this therapy? Were there any side effects where there's a subgroup that actually responded particularly well? Mm -hmm. Just doing that would allow us not only to advance the care of patients, but allow us the underlying biological science to find new cures, for example. Well, what's standing in the way of that? I, of course, I assume that it's privacy problems. Well, I think with regard to privacy, Institutions use their concerns about privacy as a smokescreen behind which they hide their own secondary gain around not sharing the data broadly. Hmm. When you go to Amazon or when you go to Netflix, they know a lot about your shopping history, and they use that data to compare you to other consumers. So if you like this, you probably like that. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. But so isn't the medical industrial complex already doing this? Like, I feel like I hear about health insurers and hospitals and so on trying to use our data better. Our data is already being used all the time without our knowledge for figuring out where to market drugs, 
there's a whole economy of secondary use of data from the healthcare system that's around the business of healthcare. Like what else? What else is it being used for that we don't even know about? <laughs> how to bill, what price to charge uh, for a procedure, uh-huh. um, how much to charge for a medication. Your data's out there already. Okay. And it's ironic that the one area of data sharing that patients would most benefit from is one which is the most constricted by regulation and by institutional rules. That makes me kind of mad. I mean, it makes me, you know, get a little bit militant and say, okay, I do want control of my data because everyone else has their dirty little fingers on it. That's right. They're truly heartbreaking stories of therapies that are working today that are not being brought to bear because there's so much intentional noise about what's the right therapy. And why might that be? Money. That would be why it is, because we are very conflicted as a healthcare system. We have built entire lines of industry around particular procedures, which may not be optimal. Yeah. Think how long it took us to agree that the prostate-specific antigen test was not particularly specific. Think how many prostates were removed unnecessarily, how much impotence and urinary incontinence was created needlessly because there was a huge conflict of interest. We could not have an honest discussion about it for years because there were a lot of wallets that were being stuffed as a result. Now, there is actually some hope here. That's good. Let's have the hope. Which is, as part of the billions of dollars that the Obama administration funneled into subsidizing electronic health records, was a commitment to something called the blue button. What is the blue button? What is the blue button? The blue button is a button you press, you the patient press, either literally on a screen or metaphorically, Mm -hmm. and outcomes all your data that you can then share with another caregiver or with a foundation that accumulates data about you. So this exists already? Some vendors support it in some form. And your listeners can pressure test this by going to their care providers and say, I'd like the download of my data through the blue button. They're either going to get a blank look (laughs) or a bunch of mumbo jumbo, or maybe they'll actually get their data. But I can assure you that the first two cases will actually accelerate the compliance with the requirement to have this blue button work. Because if it does work, that's going to free your data to be used for many other things under your control for research studies, but some of them will be directly relevant to how we're treating people like you or your family members. So find out about your blue button. That's right. Anything else people should go home and do? You are the expert on your disease. You know more about it than anybody else. If the doctor says something that doesn't sound quite right, ask them more questions. If they don't answer in a way that makes sense to you, you're not dumb. They're not explaining well, either because they can't explain well or more likely they don't have the answer. Making our data more broadly available is going to allow other communities, other doctors, but also patient communities, to have those answers that we'll need in the future. So go to it. Blue button. So, Carrie, did you take his advice? 
Did you find your blue button? <laughs> well, I, I can't because it's just not there yet, at least not on my very prestigious hospital's patient portal. Okay, but it's worth asking about at my next doctor's appointment. I think actually I will feel a little more empowered as a patient if I at least try a tiny bit to apply the pressure that Zach talked about. Right, yeah, I feel the same way. Okay, so that's it for this episode of The Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Teenage Zombies, a glimpse inside the minds of teens from sleep to porn. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Carrie Goldberg. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman. See you next time. See you, Rachel. See you, Carrie. Hello! I'm Felix Salmon, and this week on Slate Money, we're going to talk about airports and Fed independence and the UK elections. It's a good one, people. Find us at slate.com slash slate money or subscribe to Slate Money on iTunes.